What's up, Welcome back now? Nostalgia. Dave here with a loaded pod. A lot of great stuff to talk about. Going to talk the Succession Season 4 finale. Succession is over. The Barry Season 4 finale. Barry is over. HBO really hitting us with two heavy hitters uh, the past two months. Excited to talk about both of those. Also, The Marvel's Mrs. Maisel Season 5 on Amazon Prime Video. The series finale as well. That is over. And also from Dreamcatcher. New EP, Apocalypse From Us, a really exciting uh, rock-inspired K-pop release. And, of course, Survivor 44 on CBS, the best reality series. I also was planning to talk about the Little Mermaid live-action remake from Disney. But the movie theater next to my house the past three days over the weekend was closed due to an electric uh, outage. So I did not see Little Mermaid. That's why I'm talking about this, but still a load of pod, a lot to get into. So make sure you hit the link below, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, subscribe any way you can. Follow the playlist for the best songs of the year on Spotify. See the link below and let me know what's good. Let's get into it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Dreamcatcher's eighth EP, Apocalypse From Us, completing the Apocalypse trilogy, Dreamcatcher Back. With their first release since renewing their contracts at the end of 2022. And I think Dreamcatcher is an incredibly notable and interesting act in K-pop for several reasons. I think these reasons are pretty obvious. But one, they're signed to a small label. A label that in fact changed its name from Happy Face Entertainment to the Dreamcatcher Company. They are the face of a small label and not a big four K-pop label. So that's success you always like to see because they're kind of operating outside that like mainstream industry. And on top of that, they're further operating outside the mainstream because of their musical sound, their musical identity. Dreamcatcher, ever since they debuted in 2017, makes rock music. They have metal influence. At the most charitable, you could say it's like dark pop, but it's really like, you know, K-pop's take on rock music. And they are by far and away the face of hearing rock in k-pop and as a result of that they've been very successful touring they've been just a very successful group despite their largely independence in terms of sonic direction and you know like distribution and whatnot so i think they're just really cool in that regard having already renewed all seven members you know we're approaching that second act of this group you know i think this you know athp Apocalypse from us, the seventh EP, end of last year, one of the other Apocalypse EPs, and then the second album that came out uh, about a year ago in 2022. This is kind of like the, the continuation of like this era we're in here. But yeah, I think this is a great example of what Dreamcatcher does and a perfect jumping in point for anybody new. They have a fair amount of catalog already, obviously eight EPs, but with this one, like it's very brief. Five songs, one of those is the intro, intro from us, but right away on that intro song, the guitar solo kicks in very quickly, and you're like, ah, yes, this is what I'm in for, and then they waste no time, you get right into the title track, Bon Voyage, which has a music video out now. Man, the drums go so hard on that, and the guitar goes so hard. This is a great example of like on like the chorus, the, ver- the, the chorus that Bon Voyage has, it's not exactly like a hook-heavy song, the chorus... It's like really metal, like really jamming out 
on the guitar. It goes really hard. And I think, honestly, it reminds me of, like, what an anime opening credits song would sound like when you hear, like, those extended opening credits on an anime or even just, you know, an Asian cartoon. And a lot of times it has, uh, like, that really extended outro, like, with, with the guitars. And, like, I don't know, this, this reminds me of exactly that vibe of, like, the title sequence. Really, really funny to me. But I think it sounds really awesome. Um, bon Voyage, I think, was my favorite song on the album. Kind of unexpectedly with Bon Voyage, you have a rap verse coming in, like the second verse. And it actually fits the song pretty well. I really enjoy the delivery. I think it's it's uh, really well done. Following up Bon Voyage, track three, uh, Demian. Also, really hard once again. Just the guitar, again, just sounds so great. And I think what's really cool about Dreamcatcher 2 is like these are not songs designed to be trendy or you know fit for tiktok or whatever they don't really have like grabby hooks like that big catchy choruses that's not what it is it's almost like a song where it's like the the build of the song the build of the instrumentals it, it is more of the point the more of the attraction and the vocals really like fit in there nicely whether they're really hard vocals matching the tempo of those guitars or it's a little slowed down in between the big high moments it's a uh, pretty interesting how they make these songs the beginning of Demian also had a really brief remind, reminder for me where it's like the sound towards the beginning reminds me of the Seinfeld like scene transition like jingle song. I don't know why that's where it's bringing me, but that's where it brought me. Uh, track four, Propose, I also like quite a bit. The guitar line is like super distinct on that. Sounds awesome. Um, the rap on that, though, really acts as more of a switch up than the rap on... Uh, The rap on Bon Voyage does. I don't think the rap on Repose fits nearly as well. That can be an issue with K-pop sometimes, where like a hip hop verse is almost like ham fisted into the song, like for you know con- conceptual reasons, and doesn't necessarily fit the rest of the vibe. I don't think it dis- detracts so much from Propose, but didn't quite feel as seamless the way the rap does in Bon Voyage. And then the last song, To You, is I think a really nice come down song, really nice outro, taking the temperature back down bringing the slowing down that tempo just a bit and before you know it the ep is over 14 minutes and yeah i mean i think think just my takeaway is like shout out dreamcatcher for really intentionally from the very beginning trying to carve out their own path and sticking to it not jumping at any trends not selling out like one song on the project to chase the radio or whatever that's not what they do and I think they've really earned that status as like the face of rock and K-pop because the success speaks for itself. But let me know, how did you feel about Apocalypse from us, from Dreamcatcher? Let me know. And for more music reviews, more K-pop reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up, welcome to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Survivor 44. Survivor Season 44 just wrapped up on CBS. Another, you know, entry, the landmark reality series to me the best reality series on tv bar none the only one i really watch as a result just because nothing's quite as good as survivor when it's good and even when it's just okay it always compels me i think that's why i love survivor so much is putting yourself in those shoes putting yourself in that situation going over all the options and choices that are presented to the people and figuring out how would you have acted in that moment could you have thought the way they did what would you have done differently it's just so fun and it's always so fulfilling to me to try and 
continue to think about the series. That's why I find it so engaging. I think Survivor 44 has an interesting season, right? It's now the fourth uh, example of our new era of Survivor, the the shorter uh, duration season, post-season 40. And by and large, I think this new era has been carried by very strong casting on the part of production. And the criticisms you could put in this new era is largely, I think, production influenced, which would be um, an overwhelming uh, emphasis on twists and advantages and things like that, things beyond the original core Survivor game that people have known for 20 plus years. And also, I think something that's a bit unforeseen by production, but will be on the Survivor production team to rectify in the future, which is something I do find compelling, but has presented issues with the way Survivor is currently structured, and I'll get into how this affects season 44, is the issue of the high Survivor IQ, the high floor people bring to being on Survivor in the 2020s that they didn't bring back in the day in the 2000s. The people that go on Survivor now are all diehard Survivor fans and have been watching the show for 20 years. They think about it the way us people at home think about the show, thus the choices they make, the decisions they make, the rationale they have is just more advanced and more strategic by and large than anything from the past. And that level of consistency brings, I think, a lot of like more objective gameplay to Survivor. It's really funny to watch the show where people have a hard time keeping any secrets and will just blast anything out there. Also, alliances are so, so rare now at this point. People will entertain every single conversation and just kind of go up and down from there you have someone like danny burning his idol to keep franny alive in a vote and then what is it a week two weeks later for us you know if you have an episode or two later he votes out franny you know it's like shit like that happens it's kind of wild um so i think with 44 i would say this is an example of good casting but probably the probably my least favorite cast of this new era certainly behind 41 and uh, 43. And the gameplay has been good, but I think not amazing. But thankfully, uh, this is the, the best example of an alliance in the new era. Of course, the Tika 3 end up running the table against all odds. And that was the most captivating thing about 44. I think really what saves the season overall. Because otherwise, you just have a lot of like kind of misplays by some characters. You have some of the biggest personalities in the season like Brandon and Danny and Franny going out kind of early, you know, like uh, people that did remain, you know, people like, people like Jamie, you know, um, even people like Heidi, they're not given like a ton of screen time, honestly, to really uh, stand out. And I don't know, it is what it is. Sometimes you just kind of get more, more straightforward gameplay. Um, I think obviously Carolyn and, and Jam Jam, they got so much screen time right away. They really carried the pre-merge stuff. And then you watch them make it all the way to the very end as well. It was actually a pretty fun storyline. That being said, I think there was a lot of fear that Carolyn could end up being like a Gabler type win, like in 43. And it didn't go that way. And I actually think Jam Jam's performance at the final tribal council really sold him as a winner and makes him a really capable uh, and, and, and deserving winner. But in the process, of course, what, what what happened? Carson was taken out at four, at fire, just like last season where Jesse was taken out at four, at fire, 
the biggest threat, the clear winner, gets taken out at four. That is a trend that continues. And that is a trend that continues to happen because there's just a, a, a outsized importance placed on winning that challenge and thus being able to decide the fire. Now, there's of two minds, right? Oh, well, you should you, that, that immediate challenge should have more weight because it's the last one. I understand that. But I just kind of don't like the whole crux of fire making. Like Heidi, Heidi felt that she had no choice but to go into fire herself and take out Carson. And despite all that, she still had really no compelling case to win. And I don't know. I just think it like, I just don't like it as like a, an option because like you want the best people there at the end. And it's getting to the point where like survivor IQ is, is so advanced. That's like the move now is to be as under the radar as possible. Be as keep yourself as safe as you can. And then to make a big move as late as possible, taking out a uh, presumptive threat at the time and putting yourself in that threat's place and get to the end. And that's just not as compelling to the viewer because the person who's pulling that off was not a key cog in the storytelling earlier in the season. That's on production to find a way how to, to fix that because the gameplay of the contestants is going to be decided by the format that the show is in. So, you know, I don't have... I don't. I, it's no one else's fault. Productions needs to figure that kind of stuff out. Um, I thought Jam Jam was the correct pick of of the final three, because really him and Carolyn had a very similar game. They were together the entire time. They were almost always on the right or wrong side of the same votes. They're usually voting together, less so at the end. But Jam Jam was able to, I think, articulate why he deserved it better. We're talking really talking about his social game and, and how he could read people's eyes and stuff really highlighting that and i think he's a pretty uh, compelling winner as someone who's on the bottom for so long got votes cast against him constantly was able to come in to the merge at the bottom and take people out take people out to target him you know having beat you know, having just a bias against people and then turning into a power player like it's a compelling win also nice that he's the first queer winner in over 15 years would not have guessed it had been that long but awesome I uh, and, and he's also a winner who had no advantages. Incredibly impressive to pull that off. But again, it kind of speaks to um, just the way things work now. It's like you win a lot of immunities, people are going to get you get you out, like Franny. You get advantages, you play a little flashy, like Danny, you're dead. You rise to the top in the la- late later half, everyone's gunning for you, like Carson. You know that's just how it goes. Um, I think Carson was pretty compelling. I'd like to see him back. Obviously, he's quite young. I'm sure he'll be back on a returning season. He also highlights a huge issue that Survivor 44 brought up, which was the fact that Carson's able to 3D print Survivor puzzles at home and practice and have the confidence that he will encounter those very same puzzles on the show when he goes on. I mean, that that's just an L on CBS in production. Like, spend more money and make more puzzles. That cannot happen. Like, it cannot be that easy. Hats off to Carson for pulling that off, doing that prep. Um, it's not his fault, but he should not be able to do that. And that's on production. They just need to make more puzzles. That You should not be able to practice puzzles like that because we know how integral puzzles are as an equalizer-type um, aspect of many challenges, especially in the merge. So I was not a fan of that overall. Yeah, I think um, the other thing that was kind of interesting about 44 was production introducing fake idols themselves. Obviously, contestants have created 
fake idols to try and dupe opponents before, which is a great, great, great thing. Really fun. Doesn't happen often, but we like it. But production putting like a real produced fake idol in there and having them look differently, you know, tribe to tribe. I think that's just an issue of like you're approaching like the dam and like you're going to break the water pretty soon where like people are just going to be so, so paranoid and have no confidence in anything being real or not. I think there kind of needs to be a line of what production does versus what the contestants can create out of thin air themselves, you know, by making own idols. I think that it's a bit risky to have that. I think it would have been fun if 44 featured Heidi correctly playing her idol and really like ratcheting up tension about her chances to win. Thankfully in the finale, you know, her winning immunity for the first time and then putting herself in fire to take out cards. Like that was compelling. That would, that added a lot of tension, but I really would have loved if the idol was played correctly. You think about it, there was not a lot of huge idol action in 44, despite the myriad fake idols, including people that found fake idols and, and all that. Alas, it happened. Uh, 45, I'm looking forward to it because it's going to be 90-minute episodes officially, which is great because I think there's so much compelling stuff about Survivor, and I think the, the social games of players, the alliances, the character dynamics, there'll be so much more to flesh out in a 90-minute episode because we know that each episode we watch is over a three-day period, so I think it won't feel uh, fluff at all. It, it, it's certainly worthy of that. You'll probably see more reward challenges as well. Um, the one disappointment I have is that 45 is not, in fact, a returnee season. And I think there was some thought that, you know, after 41 through 44, this new era, 45 would be the first returnee season of this new era. That is not the case with 45, so we will continue to cross our fingers and, and wait for that because, as I said, casting has been so strong in this new era that there's so many compelling people to want to bring back. I think you can make a really awesome all-star cast, and that's, you know, not even including any winners. Like, you could really... Really nail it across 41 through 44. So we'll hope that we get a returning season, perhaps uh, in 2024. But um, in the meantime, 45 will be back in September. I'll be talking about that when that comes out. But let me know, how did you feel about Survivor 44? How did you compare it to other New Era seasons? Did you like it more or less? And for more TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Season 5, the final season Maisel's over on Prime Video after premiering way back at the end of 2017. It's been a long time coming. I'm going to talk about the finale, the season as a whole, the series as a whole. I'm going to spoil everything in just a second. Before I do, I'll just say that I thought Maisel Season 5 was a kind of up and down mixed bag type season. I liked the way it wrapped up given how it had gone to that point. But I think there's a lot of like kind of sins that the series has had. That didn't necessarily start with season five, to be clear, but largely kind of pushed this show into a box. There were some decisions made with season five that I didn't care about that much. Uh, I just didn't kind of like where they went, and I'll get into all this. So let's just get into it. Let's just spoil everything. So Maisel season five, you know, I think um the big thing that is a hangup for me with season five is the flashbacks or the flash forwards, really. If you think about what we got with season five of Maisel, you know, jumping forward in time, sometimes jumping decades in time, we very quickly learned several key pieces of information with this series, one of which was that Maisel and uh, Midge and Susie fell out um, and were not on good terms. Midge did become successful, like, and world famous and all that. Um, Susie also became incredibly successful with many other famous clients. We learned all that information incredibly fast. 
you know? And I, to me, it really killed a lot of the dramatic stakes with this season because Marvel's Mrs. Maisel, you know, this whole run has been like, can Midge make it? You know, against all odds, this 50s, 1960s housewife, mother, single mother with two young kids. Can she become a stand-up comedian in a man's world, in a man's comedy scene? And, like, we've been watching her, you know, go up and down. And I think a big frustration many people have had with this series to this point has been watching the Mitch character make a lot of the same mistakes over and over again. Kind of a problem with the writing, a problem with the plotting. And to very quickly, in the beginning of season five, get told that everything people had been kind of wondering about actually did come true. And then we would actually learn some of the details and see that fleshed out after the fact, after the suspense had been killed. I don't know. That's a really weird decision to me. And I think just kind of a product of The Marvel's Mrs. Maisel as a series really just went on too long. And I think Amy Sherman Palladino, Dan Palladino, they just weren't as like creatively fulfilled and in the mix with making this show anymore. I think this could have been a much tighter, captivating series if it was perhaps smaller in scope and how it worked, you know. That being said, what we got, I was quite disappointed in like the the killing of the stakes because alongside that, I feel like we spent a lot of time in season five watching a lot of the same old stuff. We watched Midge get put in a situation that's not a good fit for her and watch her make a lot of the same mistakes that we had been accustomed to seeing. In this case, becoming a TV writer on the Gordon Ford show. I liked Reed Scott from Veep as Gordon Ford, you know, like a Tonight Show type stand in there. Reed Scott's really good at doing that, like two-faced, swarmy, uh, comedic timing guy. Like, I, I, I like that performance. I didn't love that situation for Midge. I did like how it ended in the finale, four minutes. I thought watching Midge get that big break with that four-minute set she does in the Gordon Ford show after seeing how long it took her to pull off getting that spot on the series and all that and thinking that's not actually going to happen at the end. Um, I like that. However, you know what would have been really great about this finale? If we didn't know that Midge becomes world famous and successful going in. Because then when we see Gordon Ford pull the rug out and say that he's going to put Midge up there as one of his writers and clearly start to just try and embarrass her and be sexist to her as his line of questioning goes, watching that play out in real time, not knowing how it would go, I think that would have been really fulfilling even further than watching her do the four minutes and seeing it actually happen, you know? That's just me. Um, other things that I thought were a bit pedestrian about this series, uh, Rose, the Rose storylines, you know, watching her kind of do a lot of the same old stuff, you know, the, the matchmaker mafia stuff playing out that string again in a whole new season. Um, just the usual, like, incompetent um, homekeeping stuff. It's kind of blah to me, honestly, as much as I love, like, Rose, love the performance uh, for Marin Hinkle. Uh, Abe. I think Abe is generally a highlight of the series. Tony Shalhoub's performance is just so, so funny. His stuff with the village voice and nothing too great this time. Probably the best moment of Abe, beyond his general comedy. I think his comedy is really funny, especially with the kids this year, with uh, Midge's kids. I thought that was probably some of the funniest stuff. But the scene he has with some of his village voice colleagues at the dinner table where he, like, it's basically like a backdoor, like, introduction of feminism to this series. And having Abe, of all people, be the spokesman for this and realizing that he should have done things differently and changing how he thought about stuff. Of course, telling this to a bunch of men who don't necessarily agree with him, doing this in the early 60s, a time that's not mainstream thought. It's like, 
this show and I think the Paladinos in general have never been super adept at like really handling um, like weightier themes like that. But I think it was pretty interesting because the the writing matched with uh, Shalhoub's performance in that scene where Shalhoub just kind of monologues as Abe waxes on about the regrets he has about how he's acted and things he could have done differently. That is pretty effective for sure. Um, that being said, like, like watching um watching rose and abe in the finale like rush to try and get a cab and they can't get one and like all the things they do and say is they're running in the city traffic that's just funny stuff because those they they know know the comedy you know um moish and shirley um joel's parents some of the shtick got a little annoying to me earlier in the season just because i think they could be a bit much but they also felt like they know exactly what those characters are and like, I thought it was ineffective enough. Like having them get back on good terms in the shower and the finale, whatever. You know, there's definitely secondary characters in the ensemble. Another mistake that I guess you can't be too hard on the creators, but writing off May in the beginning of episode one was pretty stark. Obviously, I think it's a symptom of Joel being on this show, being in this plot, and thus his parents as well was more a product of like series contracts and filling out the ensemble more so than like dramatic intention they had to find ways to keep joel on the series and it turns out having this whole sub romantic subplot with may in the past seasons didn't amount to much of anything and in the process you know they wrote the season they went to production just as a little movie called everything everywhere all at once began its run leading to a best picture win and a stephanie Shu. Best Supporting Actress nomination. You know, it would have been really cool if that momentum had carried over onto this show. It would have been an unexpected win for Maisel. Didn't happen, obviously. Um, we don't get a lot of Lenny Bruce in this season. Obviously, the big highlight of season four, the reason I thought season four was the second best season of this series, was really the, the payoff of Lenny and Midge at the end of season four. You know, the Lenny Carnegie Hall iconic set Lenny and Midge finally consummating their attraction and the conversations they have, you know, on the stage of Carnegie and stuff. That was just so, so moving. And that was the thing people were most invested in watching this show. I never wanted to see Joel and Midge get back together. And they damn, they damn near tried with season five. Thankfully, they didn't. I thought it was handled well enough considering they just had to keep Joel on the show. But Lenny, you know, you see him in, I believe it's the beginning of episode two, which is part of the opening premiere. And, you know, he's going off to California, him and Midge meet at the airport. And I was worried that I was going to be, like, the last scene and th they have together. Thankfully, it isn't. That being said, I think the way the way they handle it's a bit interesting, right? So what we get in the finale, the opening uh, scene in the finale is Lenny Bruce, you know, Lou Kirby, on set in 1965. And it's, like, a really rough set. It's not funny. It's kind of Lenny droning on about his legal issues and you can tell it's just not working and he's definitely a mess that was actually in real life his penultimate show before his death and that obviously conveys the you know issues lenny had that the show had hinted at and shown earlier um and then at the very end of the finale we see this uh dinner scene at a chinese restaurant between midge and lenny which is actually a flashback to later in the night after they uh got romantically involved in season four and just kind of this conversation about 
Lenny being really the, the one person, the truly one man, I guess you could say, the truly believe in Midge's talent, Midge's potential and stuff like that. And it's like a nice scene. doesn't necessarily communicate anything new between them, but you understand the uh, origin of the lucky number, like fortune cookie piece of paper that Midge had earlier in the episode when she goes on the Ford, Gordon Ford show. So as a result, we never see Midge learn about Lenny's tragic death. We never see how that affects her. We just kind of see her being concerned earlier in the first scene when Susie tells her that he's a mess. That's a choice for sure. I know this show has always treated Lenny Bruce. Any of the stuff they showed on stage was always like his actual real words. They never added anything. Obviously, everything else is like historical fiction, which is fun. Obviously, we like that. The Lenny Bruce performance by Luke from Luke Kirby is probably the single greatest thing this show has done. Obviously, that got two Emmy nominations, including a win in Guest Actor uh, category. I would have loved to see more. I would have loved to see how that affected Midge because, frankly, that was the thing I cared about most watching this series through five seasons, you know? And again, because season five killed all the dramatic stakes and spoiled the fact that Midge is going to make it, Obviously, I, I was moved. I, I thought it was really great watching her kill it on the Gordon Ford show, and you get to see the big break happen. I just wish I would have known there was some, you know, doubt as a viewer in the moment. Alas. Um, I think my favorite overall episode is episode six, because that's that um, Susie Roast episode. I thought that was just really funny, great episode. And I think kind of highlights, like, what this show has been about in season five has really been the, the midge Susie friendship. That has been like the anchor point that this series has been communicating. Um, obviously, I, I'm just speaking for me, was more invested in the Lenny stuff, but clearly the Susie-Midge friendship and the ups and downs of that was what this show wanted to communicate. And seeing the flash forward to 2005, the very last scene of the season five and series finale, watching Midge in her older years, be incredibly successful, but also incredibly isolated, despite her wealth. But at least she still had mended her friendship with Susie, and they talk on the phone watching Jeopardy. It's pretty moving. Um, yeah, man. Um, Marvelous Miss Maisel, season five. Um, you know, not my favorite season, not my second favorite season. But for all the faults the series had brought into the season, I think it was effective enough way to wrap things up. And... Obviously, shout out Rachel Brosnahan, truly breakout role. We'd love to see what she's up to next. Um, we know the Paladinos will get up to something soon. And if you think about the legacy of this series, which in its early years was a big, you know, comedy Emmy, Emmy darling, um, Marvel's Mrs. Maisel is, I think, up there, you know, among the signature Amazon Prime video series. You know, you think, think of what those shows would be. It's Fleabag and The Boys and The Marvel's Mrs. Maisel. And, you know, in the years to come, probably Lord of Rings, the Rings, the Rings of Power as well. But Maisel has been um, a real anchor for Amazon, even as the critical attention, the awards attention and ratings that have, that have declined. It's obviously a, a smashing success and probably a, you know, a example of perhaps TV of the past, right? As we're moving into a different entertainment industry environment with, um, you know, with the economy and the way studios are approaching things and approaching costs of series. This was a lavish period production series with a ensemble cast with a, from an A-list creator. This was not a cheap show to make. And obviously cost is truly doesn't really matter to Amazon, but there's a lot of reporting about the 
up and down identity of what it means to make content at Amazon. We're seeing that with Citadel right now. So this might end up being a um, uh, the last gasp of a bygone era when it comes to TV filmmaking. We'll see. Obviously, too early to say that now. But let me know, how did you feel about Marvelous Maisel, Mrs. Maisel Season 5? How did you feel about the series as a whole? Let me know. I'll be in the comments. And for more TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? I'm Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Barry Season 4. The final season of Barry is over. Series finale. I'm going to get into all that, as well as my thoughts on the series as a whole. The you know four-season run, HBO comedy drama from Alec Berg and Bill Hader. So before I get into spoilers, I'll just say that I liked season four and more than anything, I'm just really impressed with the growth that this show has had. Where this show began is very different from where it ended. And I think the show had really a impressive level of growth at that. And just the dramatic um, development has been really quite impressive. And yeah, let's just get into it. what's up with Barry season four. I think um, just going off that point, Barry began as like a Hollywood satire, right? You know, you have this hitman character, you know, veteran who goes to acting class to try and switch up his life. And it's like a really, I think, poignant like satirization, lampooning of like Hollywood culture and like acting class and things like that. And, you know, the double life of the hitman trying to become an actor, become a real person. And, like, where the show went from there, which it was at its funniest at that time. And, you know, over the course of season one and two, playing that out. And then really with season three and four getting incredibly dark, um, really a full-on drama at this point. It really should not be running the comedy Emmy category for this final season. That would be ridiculous. Um, and it, it's really about, like, these characters' psyches and the, the growth that they have as people and the, I think the comment that the show is uh, presenting is just changed quite a bit. And um, I think it's not a show that's nearly as fun to watch as it once was because, again, it's quite dark. Um, there's, you know, brief moments of, you know, graphic violence. We got that in the finale with the shootout between Fuchs and Hank's people. But really, I think the the journey that like the core characters go on in their lives and in their own heads in terms of how they rationalize things. That's really what this show was about. And you would not have seen that coming with season one. And really I think hats off to Berg and Bill Hader who had a strong, clear vision for this series and set out to do a very specific thing with how they wrapped up Barry and Definitely one of the best, you know, HBO shows of the last, you know, five plus years. Um, you know, I think with season three for me, I wasn't quite as high on it as like the early um, seasons. And I think perhaps it was just that transition point. But, you know, the show gets quite uh, like metaphysical in, in, in season three, which, again, is something you would not have seen coming in, in the early seasons. And, you know, season four makes, I think, a really specific choice in the middle part of the season, um, which is this time jump really for I believe for the first time like a time jump time skip forward as uh, Barry and Sally are uh, on the lamb after Barry breaks out of prison and then you realize they have a kid and they're living really in the middle of nowhere in the midwest I assume and living these really private like specific lives as they try and raise this kid in solitude and 
like you know it's it presents itself as like being like a dream or like a, a fugue state of some kind based off what we had seen you know like on the beach in season three and you watch like the subsequent episodes and you realize actually no that was just a straight up time skip that that really happened it was it was definitely a choice i think to to do that and to give barry a a, a and, and sally a child um and i think that's one of the weaker parts of season four in the wrap-up of this series is the kid uh john who you know at the very end there there's a further time skip and you see john aged up a bit played by jada martell and you watch this uh uh, hokey Warner Brothers, we assume, film about the Barry and Gene Cousineau story, and like John um, accepting what the public has accepted as really happened in this story, and it's like a really hokey f- uh, film. That's a funny juxtaposition of like how Barry was, because Barry is not a hokey show. Um, but I don't know if that moment completely lands because we don't spend a whole lot of time with John. Um, I think thematically, it's a nice connection to how other characters are going, where John's like seeing this and rationalizing to himself that his dad wasn't actually the vile human that he might have he might have thought he was because that's not what everyone else thinks barry uh didn't didn't go down that road in the court of public opinion funny enough but yeah i think that that was kind of an interesting thing that don't necessarily landed which is the kid i think the sally stuff in the time skip is really impressive and also it's like a really like makes you have like no remaining doubt about like the uh deranged nature that barry has gone down where he will you know listen to like uh, religious podcasts or rationalize his horrible decisions and why he's a bad person and things like that like that's all incongruous and i think the best thing about the time skip actually is what happens with hank and the noho hank character that character development that character growth is perhaps the signature achievement of Barry as a series, honestly, like Anthony Kerrigan, amazing performance across four seasons. But when you first meet Noho Hank, it's a comic relief character, you know, this um, funny part of the Chechen mob. And in one point in the story-making process, Hank was supposed to die. And um, that was all fine and good, but you would not have expected to have this really dramatic path with Noho Hank and seeing him, become successful, become straight, you know, in the eyes of the law, more or less, um, in the time skip. And yet him having this really debilitating, like, pain because of what he had to do to achieve that, um, that just is not something I would have ever seen coming with Barry. And that that's a really impor- uh, impressive stuff earlier in the season where Barry betrays Crystal Ball and <laughs> kills all of their men in the sand silo and goes back, gets back in with the Chechens, with the Colombians kind of neutralized. And then Hank, knowing that Cristobal needs to stay with him, otherwise he'll be taken out, and, like, the pain that he feels when his love rejects him for what he has done. And then, of course, Cristobal gets whacked as a result. Like, Hank is broken at that point. And, like, that's kind of what this show is about. It's about broken people. You know, as Sally, her despair is kind of continuous throughout the seasons three and four but of course in season three she brought a lot of that on herself in terms of her you know the way she moved in the industry and how she was a really selfish and arrogant person and you kind of see that manifested again in season four where she's kind of being a coach for someone who's clearly 
a worse actor than her, but like a more conventionally attractive woman. And like, you can see Sally's, um, the, the longing she has that of what she could have had in the industry. I really liked how that went. Um, Fuchs also has quite the journey on this show. Again, starts out as the handler of Barry the Hitman at the beginning of the show and kind of a surrogate father figure. And, you know, I think where that goes, season three is kind of out of the picture, like away. And then I think his season four stuff's really fun, right? Like him, Fuchs being the Raven, this alter ego criminal mastermind identity he's put on himself and then actually manifesting that. Uh, in prison by kind of toughening out the uh, line of questioning that's been put on him when the FBI, I believe, was trying to ascertain stuff that Fuchs really didn't know. Um, and Fuchs kind of makes himself into the Raven, faked it until he made it, basically. And then, uh, you know, against all odds, you know, you have this, like, tete-a-tete with, uh, with, uh, with Hank towards the end. But Fuchs, learning that Barry had a kid, kind of snaps back to... Uh, what semblance of a heart he once had realizing that he wronged Barry and, and, and fucked him up for years back in the day, diving on John to save Barry's kid and shepherding Barry's kid back to Barry. You know, it, it's kind of a full circle moment. Now, I when I first saw that, I thought like Fuchs and his fucked up mind was like, oh, I can make a new Barry. I thought that's actually where he was going with it. But actually, I liked how it went. Obviously, Hank... Uh, dies in that shootout because Hank just was unwilling to admit what he had done, admit, admit how painful that was to Fuchs, what he had done to Cristobal, and, and rather would go out in a blaze of glory than acknowledge what he had done. And like that, like I think theme of denial was like really present in like the back half of the, of this season. Again, like John, the you know uh, Barry Sally's son, him watching the movie. You understand that denial theme, um, but we don't necessarily have enough time with him to have that necessarily resonate. But I think, you know, like the big shock of, of the finale, watching Barry really, for the first time, come to terms with how fucked up he, he is, how he was, and he cannot rationalize and deny things to himself any further. He's going to turn himself in um, and clear Gene Cousineau's name in the process, and yet Gene um, just decides that he, he just, he'd rather kill Barry, kill the one who killed his girlfriend, um, you know, Janice, way back at the end of season one. And in the process, uh, Gene goes to jail, life, life in prison as a result for killing Barry. And the, the law believes he killed Janice, even though it was Barry. And Gene had a chance, had his own out, but he also just couldn't... Um, he could he couldn't go down that road you know it's funny like all the characters in in Barry are bad for one reason or another um it's very similar to succession i guess watching these final seasons back to back over the last two months has been quite the uh ride for sure Barry definitely a lot less um lacking on the laughs than succession that's obvious but yeah i think the gene stuff when like you know a few episodes back in season four you think oh gene is has a way back in after being hiding in hiding but like i think perhaps that can be like a, a bit of um hang, uh, like a point of contention for like some viewers which is how things kind of went with gene like if you think about it like the fbi and jim moss being like kind of duped into just 
going down the wrong road and having the wrong conclusion about things. Gene's son, the same way. And I don't know, like, there was a lot of, like, evidence earlier in the seasons, earlier in the, the show's run, about Barry's role as a criminal. Like, there were other investigations into him just last season. So it's a bit neat and tidy how all things went. I think we can yada yada that. The one thing that jumped out to me in the moment, and I saw some other people knowing this as well, was that Jim Moss was, like, really lax in how he had Barry, like, tied up in his home after tracking him down at the back half of this season. Like, Barry just gets to escape. And Jim Moss didn't seem as concerned about that. Again, the person who killed his, uh, you know, what, uh, a daughter. Even if he believes Cousineau coaxed him to do it, this was still the actual murderer, right? Barry. And that felt a bit, a bit incongruous, I suppose. But yeah, I think overall, man, like, Barry is a, is a show that I think absolutely should be celebrated just for what it achieved and what it grew into over the course of four seasons. This is definitely a show that could have continued to run for a long time, especially in its earlier iteration. Like, is is the hitman living the double F going to be found out? Tune in next week and let's see. Like, this could have been a much simpler but still satisfying type of show than it ended up being. But I think Hader has openly said that he has, like, real aspirations to be a director and like this was kind of his way in to doing that being a film director specifically and him being able to be the creative force behind this show directing you know the back half of season three all of season four like just kind of being that uh talent and, and showing the industry what he can do and what he's interested in it's it's really impressive so i'll be really interested to see where this competes in the emmys like this needs to be run in drama like there's funny stuff but i think the funnier stuff now in barry in season four was like watching barry walk into walmart and buy a bunch of machine guns and then storm out through like the toy aisle like that's the kind of humor it was but like hank was not nearly as funny as he once was in season one this i don't think you can good conscious call this a comedy but because it's a half hour runtime the old like definitions of how we talked about in classified TV almost position this as a comedy. And I hope those like stringent definitions don't do that to this show. That being said, like I think if you put Barry up against most comedies that are out, like it's better than those shows. Like I think Barry versus, you know, the bear versus Abbott elementary would be an interesting battle. Right. But Barry should be running drama. If you ask me, we'll see what happens uh, later this fall when that happens, when that goes down and I'll be talking about the Emmys when they come up, but let me know. How'd you feel about Barry? What did you feel about this growth season one to season four? Did you like it? Did you like an old, earlier version of the show more? Did you like how this wrapped up and for more TV reviews, subscribe and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Succession season four, the final season of Succession. I'm going to talk about the finale, the full season, my thoughts on the series. I'm going to spoil everything. But before I do, I just want to say Succession is in the television pantheon, one of the greatest shows of all time. I think that's incredibly clear, not up for debate. And frankly, I would say Succession is on that HBO Mount Rushmore. Now, that is a tall task, a uh, high bar to clear, but I don't know. I think, you know, The Undeniables, Sopranos, The Wire. After that, I'd have Game of Thrones and Succession in there. Next tier down, Leftovers, Veep, Deadwood. You can argue that. My point is, I think Succession is absolutely spectacular. They nailed this finale. And 
I'll spoil everything in a second, but like I think what makes Succession so great, so memorable, so important, and so excellent is just I think a lot of obvious things that have been the case for a while, but the execution has always been so good, and this final season really nailed it. A big part of this is Succession kind of surprising everyone, deciding that season four was the final season. That was not publicized until you know the season was about to come out. That was a honestly a real masterstroke by Jesse Armstrong and having the show go out with you wanting more. The show ended with clearly plenty of runtime, plenty, plenty of uh, meat on the bone with all of these characters that are so finely drawn at this point that this show could have easily gone on for several more seasons. And if the show was on Showtime, it would have gone on for several more seasons. But Jesse had a plan and uh, him in the writer's room just deserves so much credit for the vision that is succession. And I just found it really riveting the entire time. I was hooked on the show from the get-go. We've reviewed every past season on the show as well. Check those out. But, you know, I think it just really is a show that got better and better. And season four, I just found incredibly riveting the entire time. And that just goes to all the things you expect, the amazing acting, the amazing characterization, the absolutely impeccable writing. I saw someone tweet tonight that Succession does writing uh, or Succession does talking scenes like John Wick does action scenes, and that is a hundred percent true. Like it's just really the most compelling dr- dr- drama you can have, and it's gone. You know, uh, forty hours or uh, forty episodes, thirty episodes, whatever it is, an amazing run. And let's get into that, you know, but just shout out Jesse Armstrong, shout out this writing, writer's room. They really smashed this and they should really be proud. This is going to run away with Emmys uh, this fall, you know, and I think uh, the acting Emmy battle and like the actors going up against themselves, I'll be very interesting to watch because not everyone can win when you're in the same category. But yeah, let's get into it. So in addition to Succession, really nailing it with the kind of surprise four season being the final season decision. Spoilers from here on out. Another absolute masterstroke with Succession season four was the decision to take out Logan Roy, have Logan Roy die earlier than expected. I think it was incredibly clear to most viewers that Logan would pass sometime during this season. It's in the name of the show after all. But to have it happen in episode four, I believe, episode four, right? Three or four, four. That was unexpected, shocking. And of course, the episode when it happens is amazing. But the decision to do that early and have so much additional runtime with just the kids and having them go through everything without the gravitational force that was their lives, that was this show's center, Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox, like to have the show enter its like final act with like six hours to six hours on the runway still absolutely amazing decision they made the most out of that that choice i thought it was really good obviously brian cox recently once the press tour wrapped up with episode four he's recently said that he thought it was too early and i mean you can't blame him personally but i have to disagree i think they really crushed it with that decision and just you know from then on out like it's just episode after episode that's just a fucking banger, man. But, like, if we just backtrack, like, even, like, the, the last moments we get with Logan, he's only, he's barely on the season after all, right? Um, and we get some, you know, uh, 
like video footage and like the living plus presentation like you know video like you see logan after episode four obviously not in life but if we backtrack like the logan in the present that you do get um i think is there's some really poignant moments right like um, the moment i believe it's episode one or two um the only real moment of logan's um like uh, the, only, the only genuine moment he seems to have in his life anymore is when he goes to the diner with his bodyguard and has like a really frank conversation with him. Absolutely impeccable scene. Com- communicates so much after you have this episode where he has all these hangers on and people in his life that want something from him. And like it, Logan kind of communicating like that loneliness um, to the audience via that conversation with his bodyguard, I thought was really masterful, right? And then episode three, Connor's wedding. Um, you know, the karaoke bar scene at the very end, the famous quote, of course, you know, I love you, but you're not serious people. Great meme. But also like that whole moment of Logan basically being as honest and uh, sorry, apologetic as he possibly could be to his children was in that moment right there. It was amazing. And you combine that with an absolutely impeccable Connor moment. In general, this is the best Connor Roy season. Alan Ruck, shout out to him. You know, Connor Roy, I'll get him in a second, but like Connor playing off that, you know, in the karaoke bar scene and being, I think, really uh, lucid and seeing the board better than his younger siblings, really, really moving. And then right after that, you know, Logan dies. It's like this huge thing. And I think what's cool about Succession Season 4 is that largely each episode is like a day in the life. Like it's only taking place over like one day, more or less the finale changes that up. But generally speaking, it's like, short com- compressed periods of time and it's all pretty quick right because we build up to the funeral for logan at the very end of the season and it's actually i think a bit of like dissonance to the audience where it's like if you're you're watching this week to week over the past you know to uh, 10 weeks which has been absolutely thrilling to engage with the show and talk about this show every week again week to week is the way to go with dramas no doubt but the the characters have progressed such little time and meanwhile it's been two months for us and i think like a few weeks back or two weeks back one week back when they one week back sorry when they go to the funeral and like you know like shiv has a comment about being like oh sorry my dad just died it's like your dad just died well i didn't know for her her dad had just died only been a few days but for us it had been two months kind of interesting thing that you wouldn't normally think about um, about a week-to-week viewing pattern where like you're sitting with plot points longer than the actual characters you're watching are experiencing them um yeah um great connor season right you would never expect like that to be a thing with the show through the first three seasons like alan ruck amazing casting amazing performance but connor of course has always been the uh, comic relief he's the joke and that is still the case in season four but i think he just really gets to blossom as a character and have actually uh, incredible self-awareness and willa as well like a uh, great season for her their relationship kind of being out on front street for what it is the transactional nature that it is um and you know kind of running a vanity campaign for president sticking with it um all that stuff i don't know i thought it was like like really captivating just because like connor in the moments he does have on the show he he often in the season he often had like really I think, perceptive things to say, usually to his other siblings. So, I mean, I, I really loved all the Connor stuff throughout the season. Um, yeah, man. Uh, let's see. What else? So, I think there's, like, standout episodes, right? Obviously, we know 
um, Connor's wedding episode three, the death scene, the ep- death episode, episode four, like these are like, huge things, right? You know, I think like once once episode four honeymoon states happens and, and Logan dies, it's just banger after banger. You know, like episode five, kill list, fucking incredible stuff, right? This is when the Roys go to uh, Europe to the Gojo retreat to treat with Madsen right after their dad has died. And of course, builds up to, I think, all of it's like tete-a-tete, you know, in, in the um, in the retreat, which I think is just compelling conversation after conversation. So, so good. Culminating in this th- uh, rooftop uh, meeting, or not rooftop, um, mountaintop meeting between Kendall, Madsen, and Roman. And Roman eventually um, decides that he, or, you know, Roman, Roman explodes, right? Explodes on Madsen. Really amazing stuff. But like, the build up to that where like this season really comes into focus, right? Where Kendall and Rome and, and Shiv, uh, so they think, are all assigned to scuttle the deal, keep ATN, not sell to Gojo. And that becomes like our you know, through line plot uh, point throughout the rest of the season. I thought Kill List was really good, you know, learning a lot of stuff about the other people that work uh, for Madsen is really fun. Uh, some great Greg and Tom stuff there, but like I thought that was a dynamite episode. And then you follow that up the following week with episode six, Living Plus, where I think, you know, this is like a, a big like piece of like character growth, character momentum for Kendall and uh of Roman. You know, Roman backing out on the uh on the on the pitch, on, on the thing, leaving Kendall off the dry basically, and having Kendall smash it, crush it, um, which of course selling bullshit, not not actually doing delivering on something but he's delivering on the bullshit in a way that uh you know indie investors and the stock market likes and stuff and like that's the grift that they they've been 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 into right that's that's how they work that's how their um leadership is like seeing that kind of stuff right seeing the glean in kendall's eye in that episode kendall um is happy to become Icarus and fly as close to the sun as he possibly can, because that's just what he craves. That's the thing that fuels him. Meanwhile, Roman thinks that's what he wants, but is actually a really small person and, and, and truly just like a fucked up in the head kind of guy for many reasons. I thought living plus was excellent. Like it keeps going, right? Like episode eight, America decides, God, I mean that, 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 this, that's succession. I don't think succession can make you feel any worse than how that episode makes you feel right and i think that's kind of leads into like what kind of show this this is right like these are all detestable people for their um character character flaws as well as their you know enormous wealth and how they how they flaunt at their lack of care for other people like these are all flawed um bad people that we like on watching the show and yet like many of the other you know hit dramas of yesteryear this era of difficult men on tv you end up rooting for people. You end up rooting for Don Draper and Walter White and Tony Soprano, even though they're bad. And sometimes that's like uh, a disconnect between the creators and the writers of, of that very medium, right? Like they, they don't want you to like these people, but you just get attached to them. You get incredibly attached to the characters on Succession, including someone like Logan Roy, who is a, a bad person. Someone like Roman, who in America decides just shows you how vile a person he actually is and the, obviously the parallels to uh you know fox news and the 2020 election things like that it's very obvious a lot of the uh you know the 
lampooning of the the Murdoch family has been very clear and and on the nose by design on succession for the past four years. That's nothing new. But I thought America Decides actually hits really close to home as an episode while also making you feel really bad for being invested in in the journey of these characters. You know, um, shout out Justin Kirk, who plays Jared Mankin, the uh, Republican nominee for president. Amazing performance from him. It's a really specific, like, style. Um, and like you don't get a lot of him but I think that's like a really like nice like zeroed in performance from Kirk and I think like a kind of underrated thing about how Succession wraps up from there with the last three episodes like they don't tell you if Mankin ended up actually winning they kind of hinted stuff right the stuff I believe Wisconsin right it's like did the votes get uh get get fully counted it it did did ATN pull Arizona and call a state for Trump or Mencken that didn't actually go that way? Did they actually win the presidency or not? They don't tell you if that actually happened in the world of succession or not. You get the reference. You understand what it's acknowledging. But that's not what this show is about because the finale was concerned about what's actually important about the show. And it's the Roy family and those family dynamics. And I just thought the finale was masterful. You know, it's just you watch the three core siblings, Shiv, Ken, and Rome, and they seem to come together, you know, um, especially once they learn uh, that Shiv is not going to be the American CEO for Gojo. Madsen doesn't want someone as independent and as ideas driven as Shiv wants to be as a leader. Madsen wants an underling and thus picks Tom uh, in, in, uh, you know, her place, Tom, someone who, of course, throughout the season says he's willing to serve. That's the kind of person he wants to be, right? Because he's addicted to power. Watching all that go through, it's very reminiscent of the season three finale, right? It's like the, the siblings have come came together. They're going to finally win. They're going to get this shit done. And despite everything they've been through, all the fucked up shit that Roman did in, in two episodes back, Kendall, despite all his flaws, having his shit together, Shiv trying to find some kind of purpose, um, you know, fulfillment leading up to this board meeting. Riveting shit. Absolutely riveting shit. Whipping the votes, right? And it goes through. And man, they throw a curve with 20 inches of break, man. Everyone watching this shit swung and missed. No one saw that coming. Did I think it was going to go right for them? I, I was not confident. Definitely not. Again, does it go right for them in season three? No. Tom fucks them. What happens this time, though? I think what needed to happen, right? There's been a lot of like talk about who's going to win succession, who wins. And to me, like I never really viewed it as a show where like there'd be a winner, right? Like, there's a lot of joking about would Cousin Greg win. Well, Greg definitely did not win this episode, man. Uh, flipping on Tom, the very last minute, uh, you know, tipping off Kendall that Shiv was the uh, not getting it, right? And then Tom actually becomes CEO because the deal does go through. And now uh, you know, all, all the capital, the goodwill that Greg has built up for years with Tom is gone, right? Even if he might still be working for Tom, Greg got absolutely smashed at the end, stomped like a little bug, you know? Um, Greg did not win. Are the siblings going to win? In a sense, they hint, you know, going to see, uh, you know, after they meet up with their with their mom to, to track down Roman, right? Uh, shout out Harriet Walter. She's always great as the mom in limited screen time. It's like, ah, well, 
someone has to be the CEO. Only one person really can do it. And Kendall's like the most agreeable, sellable choice. So they decide that they're going to anoint Ken and let him do it because he definitely wants it the most. And it's like the most logical thing. And it's like, huh, okay. So like they're all winning, even if technically Ken's the only one winning. And yet what happens? Shiv backs out. And it's like this whole thing. And like, man, in a sense, you could say it's super cringe watching these characters to, 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 you know, expose themselves in front of everyone, the rest of the board, everyone else at the company, just kind of explode on each other in a conference room where, where they can be overheard. But, you know, there was a key thing that had to come up again in this finale. It had not come up since the season three finale when Kendall brought it up. And that was, of course, that like Kendall killed someone. You know, I thought, what was that? Season two, season one, I forgot exactly when it happened. But of course, Kendall killed someone when he was, uh, you know, basically strung out. And he had told uh, Roman and Shiv at the end of season three. It came up. Not that, like, Kendall was ever going to go to jail. That's not what this was. But, like, you know, for whatever whatever her reasons, including that, uh, Shiv votes, doesn't, doesn't want Kendall to have the CEO. And it's like, on one hand, I think, like, Shiv as a character has not been super popular with viewers the last few weeks. Like, especially with, like, with America Decides, like, some of Shiv's decisions have irked the viewer, right? And this, it's like, oh, you're, you're rooting for these people again, even though, like, they're not good people to want to root for. And when, when, when Shiv can't vote no on the deal, you get angry as a viewer, even though you ne- don't necessarily should, right? It's like, is she not wrong to think that Ken shouldn't be the CEO? Does he deserve it? Would he be good at it? She doesn't think he'd be good at it. Do any of us think Kendall would be good at it? We watched him sell bullshit in Living Plus. He's good at selling the bullshit, but can he actually do it? And you have Roman drop the absolute fucking hammer once it's like really set. And it's like, we're bullshit. I'm bullshit. You're bullshit. We're bullshit. This is what we do. However, whatever he says, Roman is laying it out there to Kendall that what they do is grift. I, I mean, I was kind of floored. I was like, wow, that's it. That's the show. Like they did it. And what happens as a result? None of them are involved. The company sells the Gojo. Tom Wamsgams, of all people, becomes the CEO. And honestly, he's one of the more experienced choices, right? As we, he just has been working at ATN for some time. But Tom becomes the CEO. Shiv, by her own making, has Tom be the CEO, the job she wanted. And she thus seemingly will stay married in this loveless marriage that breaks them both down at every turn. And it's like a mind-boggling decision. And yet, it makes complete sense. Like, makes complete dramatic sense. So, like, will she ever be happy again? Uh, She chose her unhappy life and the person she detests, Tom. She chose that person winning over Kendall winning. It's pretty crazy. Roman, we we saw how small and fucked up Roman is really really throughout the whole show, especially in the back half of this season, right? He's a character that was so funny throughout the run of the show, just the one-liners performance from Kieran Culkin. But truly, like, he just, as Kendall said last week, uh, you, you fucked it. Like, he just doesn't have it. And Ken wants it so bad and just couldn't get, can't do it. You know, couldn't get it done. And watching him just kind of walk off in a, in a daze, basically, kind of 
kind of wild stuff, you know. I, I thought it was a really riveting finale. Just uh, how this show kind of communicates, I think, family and power dynamics and people's obsession and, and, and um, you know, desperation to remain close to power, whether that's someone like Tom at the top or someone low like like uh, Hugo or uh, Carolina, you know, stuff like that. Great episode for tons of the supporting cast, too. I think it's a great Carl season, great Frank season. Um, Jerry. Everyone loves Jerry. Amazing Jerry season. Um, perhaps not the most screen time for Jerry uh, throughout the course of the show, but I thought Jerry was great. Um, Jess. You know, I thought Jess, for the few small moments she did have, whether it's in America Decides talking to Greg or when she wants a new position from from Ken in the funeral episode, like, Jess, really great. You know, I think it's just a show with such a deep bench. Uh, we don't get a lot of Stewie, but we love Arian Moyed. Um, can't say enough good things about Skarsgård as well. Obviously, this is his biggest uh, role on the show. He's like a starring uh, member this this season. And the performance as Madsen is incredibly strong. The Madsen character, I think, really fit in well on this show and served like a really strong purpose, especially when after... You know everything happened with the with the deal and post post Logan. I really liked liked all that. I think it's frankly, you know, the most significant thing Skarsgård's done in some time. Like, obviously, I love the Northmen, but it wasn't a huge hit or anything. But like, it, it's a I think a really knockout performance. Tom and Greg stuff as great as ever, right? But shout out the shout out the disgusting brothers, <laughs> so fucking funny. But also like, I I think. The Tom Tom and Tom's relationship with Greg, I think, really like evolved and advanced as Greg became more of a uh, capable operator as he can throughout the run of this show. Um, All the, you know, Greg and or sorry, uh, Tom and Shiv stuff was absolutely devastating. The best acting that either of them has done on the show is usually in concert with them together. Um, The the apartment uh, fight on the balcony. Uh, absolutely gutting, really letting everything all out at the end. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I think this is just one of the great shows. Like, I think it's that simple, you know. Um, it, it's it's amazing, and I think it's on the HBO Mount Rushmore. Overall, it's in the greater television pantheon. I think that's undebatable. I think it's on the HBO Mount Rushmore. That is a um, competitive mountain to be on for sure. But uh, yeah, let me know. How do you feel about that? Is Succession on your HBO Mount Rushmore? How'd you feel about Succession Season 4? Uh, let me know. I'll be in the comments. And for more TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, I got some big stuff to talk about once again. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse Part 1 animated film. Really excited to talk about that. Also, on HBO, we have The Idol from The weekend and Sam Levinson, starring Lee Rose Depp. Controversial, polarizing series from what we know about so far. I think there's a lot to get into there. Uh, yeah, so more to come as well. Make sure you subscribe, youtube.com, hit the link below. Let me know what's up, and I'll see you next week. Yeah.